Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Today's guest is author, mountaineer, hillwalker, raconteur and all-round good egg, Mr Ian McNeish. What's that me? (laughs) And Ian's here today to talk about his five favourite books, the works of literature that most shaped his worldview and influenced his life. Ian, hello. Hello Tom, and hello listeners. Now, the first book that you've chosen, Ian, is The Hill of the Red Fox by Alan Campbell McLean. Is this a book that's had a major uh, impact on your life? Y- yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, as I went through some of the stuff, that y- y- you asked me the question about a month ago, and because it was an interesting discovery, I found it quite difficult, actually. But 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 it sent me on a discovery, a, a voyage of discovery, really. Um the first three books, I, I suppose, that that, that that will appear here, they came probably easier than the last two, I think, or, or certainly the last one. I, um, But when I started thinking about this whole question, about, I call them gateway books, perhaps, because I thought, in my life, they were almost another gateway to looking at things in a different way or, or giving me permission to, to, to head in a direction that I'd maybe thought about in the first place, but suddenly... There it was in book form, and so so. But when I started off thinking about it, actually the first thing I thought about was Arthur Mee. Arthur Mee, way back in the fifties and before, produced a whole series of encyclopedias, which told you everything, and I had a full set of them. But I moved that to one side, and then I thought the early days of comics, because in the nineteen fifties I was born in nineteen forty six. In the 50s, there were a lot of comics for children. We didn't have television and we didn't have much radio. It was radio, but we didn't hear much of it. And so there were no computers. And some of the comics were not like the strip photographic or, or comic book stuff that came later. They were actually prose. They were, they were, you had to read them. And, and in these days, the, the comics in the 50s, before I read a proper book, I would think... Uh, I devoured comics like The Hotspur, The Adventure and uh, and The Wizard. But my favourite was The Rover. Uh, It attracted me in many, many levels. It was not, as I said, a strip picture comic. It was mostly text. Uh, But out of its pages emerged so many characters that, that almost became my early heroes. Braddock, a World War II bomber pilot uh, that would feature eventually in another book of his own called, or the author's own, <laughs> called I Flew with Braddock. Um, then there was Wilson, the, the, I think they called him the Incredible Athlete. But out of the, and there was more, but my favourite was Alf Tupper, Tough of the Track, rough, unkempt character who defied convention and took on the establishment. Maybe that's some of the books you'll hear later do the same thing. Um, while his opponents turned out in the newest spike running shoes, Tupper had a pair of gutties, as we call them in Scotland. Perhaps in other areas you'll, you'll call them plimsolls, perhaps. Simple rubber-soled plimsolls. No matter, he always caught the brill cream boys in the final stage and emerged with a cup. Much to their annoyance, he then headed to the local chippy for fish and chips. So I did ponder including the rover. However... I relegated them all in favour of the first book that I actually read called The Hill of the Red Fox that you mentioned a minute ago by Alan Campbell MacLean. 
it was in the 50s, I think it came out in 55 and it wouldn't have been, I was nine then, so sometime, I got it for my Christmas not that long after that, it, well, I was engrossed with the story, I couldn't put it down, uh, I read it sometimes using a torch under the covers, which was a heinous crime certainly if I was caught with my mum on a school night. It was about a story, uh, the story was about a teenage boy, 13 or 14 I think, called Alistair, he moved out of London to live, live with relatives in Scotland, in, 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 um, in Skye, and he came across a wild country and he came across the Gaelic language, and he came across, as the reader does, careful and brave crofters, U-boats in the bay, Russian spies in death. Uh, looking back, and I have read it as an adult, it probably wasn't the best book I'd ever read, but it was a huge influence on me because it opened up a whole new life to me about about books and about reading and adventure and and, and something that I hadn't really experienced before. Um, as I said, the television and computers were not in my way to, diff, to, to diffuse that. Uh, so it was basically a gateway to literature and reading and that, that's how important it was. Funnily enough, I've bought a copy for every one of well, my own children and, the, and their kids since then. And one came back to me about three years ago, a teenage, a young teenage boy, who said, Grandad, you're the first person to give me a book in which the hero dies. He says, and I can't finish it. I says, well, lay it aside and go back to it, because you will finish it and you will understand. And he did both. That's The Hill of the Red Fox, Tom. And on the subject of powerful literature, the second book that you've chosen is Mikhail Sholokhov's novel, and quiet flows it on. Yeah. Um, yep, that had to be included, um, I think, because it was my dad's favourite book. He talked about it often. He seemed to have managed to capture a copy somewhere after he was captured and became a prisoner of war. And he read it in the prisoner of war camp in, in Poland. And, uh, yeah, it, my dad was a hero figure to me. Uh, in 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 Cholokhov's book, the the hero is is a guy called Grishka, a Don Cossack, and it's all about the interaction between him and his family, other Cossacks, and many powerful characters involved in the the Russian Revolution, the leaders of the Reds and the leaders of the Whites, and then his whole involvement with them. It was a, it's a huge stage, in my opinion, and it set up to highlight, in some ways, I think that's what Cholokhov perhaps was trying to say to us, about man's inhumanity to man, uh, about treachery, about cowardice, and about bravery. And then it's a massive tale, as I said. It almost boils down, in my opinion, to a metaphor that normal people don't have a choice. The system just rolls over them and you just try and survive as best you can and we're mere pawns. Even Grishka longed to be home on the family farm amongst his own folk and working with his horses, but he was too valuable as a leader for the system to allow that. Um, but it wasn't the fact that it was such a wonderful book to read and, and, and there was there was also the sequel as well um, and The Dawn Flows to the Sea, I think it was called. Uh, but it was more than that. Why was it a lasting influence to me? 
mostly because it gave me, well, it took me probably nearer to my real life hero, my dad, and it helped me understand him better. And, uh, and, that, and that's simply why that book has been and is and will be so important to me. Quiet flows the dawn. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because both The Hill of the Red Fox and and Quiet Flows the Dawn present quite unconventional hero figures. Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Grishka was a, was, a, was a... particularly was a real heroic figure. I mean, he, he went on to be a general and he did all the things that generals do. But I, I've got a lasting... In, in, in one of the last scenes in the book, as it were, he's on his horse, bent down over its ears galloping across the steppe, getting away from some other issue. <laughs> but as I said earlier, but really he was thinking, why am I doing this? I just want to be back home with my folk and doing what I love best in the first place. But some people, just life takes them in directions and they kind of get, always get out of these early. Well, it's not even their choices sometimes. It's systems, you know, you, you try to survive and you just go through systems and for whatever reason. And then he was one of them, and I loved the book. Um, yeah, and that's that was my second choice. Now, the next book that you've chosen is one that I'm sure will be familiar to anybody who has an interest in Scottish literature, and that is Consider the Lilies by Ian Crichton-Smith. I, I read it an awful long time ago. Um, Ian Crichton-Smith tells, he tells the story of one small part of the Highland clearances through the eyes of an old woman caught up in it and despite her age evicted from her house uh, with no other place to go it's not a history book it's a story based on an historic period in Scotland's history but powerful in my eyes nonetheless it covers how the church betrayed these poor people by being complicit with the landowners who in turn used the people's trust in the church and their local minister to convince them to move on when they didn't have any place to move on to. Uh, there are certain similarities with my previous choice, albeit on a much lesser scale. So why was the book so influential? Well, to me anyway. What was the gateway? Well, it was a gateway to Scottish history, a Scottish history that even in my mid-30s I hadn't really known an awful lot about. Um, we didn't learn a lot about the clearances in school. We heard a lot about Trafalgar and Waterloo. <laughs> the Battle of Hastings even featured. King Canute even featured for some reason. Um, and Bannockburn, I suppose, because it was big enough to feature in some level. As if that was all the history we had. Uh, and I was brought up in the centre of Scotland, and at the clearances that took place only a couple of lifespans before my birth and not much further than 100 miles north of where I lived, albeit there was clearances in the south as well, they were relatively unknown to me, and not just me. Consider the lilies opened my eyes, and it caused me to read and seek out lots more books on that whole subject to try and understand a bit about my own country's history. Um, not much, not many years later, my work took me north of Inverness to Rosshire and Sutherland and and I heard more about clearances in, in, in these days. I also learned, and this was only in like the 70s and the 80s, I also learned, that's a 
hundred years and more after, that there is still anger and resentment in some of the households in the north about that whole period in the hist in the history of the Highlands. Uh, not just be well, in my opinion, listening to them, I think I'm right in saying not just because what happened, but in some cases because that we in the south had hardly heard of it and seemed to care less. Um, I now have a Croft house myself on a Scottish island, uh, so I suppose I should be even more immersed in that whole way of life and thinking. But apart from meeting people, as I said, it actually has caused me to move out into some of these areas and to go down the whole length of Glen Calvey, where one of the you know, one of the clearances took place. And I've stood in the graveyard at Croyck Church uh, that still had the name and dates on the scratched in the window glass. Scratched there in 1845 by, by these poor beleaguered people who'd just been turned out of their houses and the house had been burned after them. So they didn't have a house to go back to. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed reading that. It's a sad book in some ways, uh, very poignant. And I think it must be one of Smith's best books. Uh, I have taken poetic license with the next, however, and I could move on to another book after that. But yeah, that, that was Smith. It's a great read. If you want to start understanding a bit about some of Scottish history that perhaps hasn't been quite as well expressed in our schools and our education system as I think it should be, then that's one place to go. Consider the lilies. And of course, Crichton Smith was a major literary figure of the time in Scotland, and you've mentioned the impact that he had on your interest in Scottish history. Yep. Did he also encourage you to seek out other Scottish writers of the same vintage? Yeah, I did. I, I, I'd been... Preble is always mentioned, and yeah, I, I dug his book out. I, I, I've, I've read the book about... Um, what was it called again? I forget what you call it, but by... Is it Thompson? I think they got Ian Thompson which is all about crofting and, 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 and some of that whole crofting way of life, and, and many others, in fact. In fact, interestingly enough, a more recent book that I read, which kind of takes you back there, was, uh, uh, I think, if I get it correct, and The Poor Had No Lawyers, by the chap who's now an MSP. Um, and that, that, that was an eye-opening book as well, but it took you right back to that whole area. And it was no wonder that having try to read these books and try to understand a bit, that the crofting laws were established because there was lots of stuff going on in the highlands, not just, the, you know, all the highlands, but not always the highlands, where people were being put down by, well, millionaire landlords or whatever you might want to call them, landowners, and, and they had to fight back occasionally. And then the crofting laws were put in place to try and protect that whole way of Scottish life albeit I think they're being looked at and maybe altered at the moment as we speak. But yeah, yes, it made me look further afield and physically go further afield to, to, to look into some of these glens and talk to some local people. Yeah, it was an influence on me. So, so we have an intriguing situation with your next book uh, in the sense it's a dead heat between two different texts that you feel are equally influential to you. The first is Letters to a Young Contrarian by a giant of philosophical and cultural debate, Christopher Hitchens. The other, Surely You're Joking, Mr Feynman, by the pioneering physicist Richard Feynman. Yeah, I, I, it just really tells the story of my life, unable to make a decision. I've 
clubbed them both together, bracketed them both, both together. Two different books, different people, obviously. Uh, I'll start with, with Hitchens' Letters to a Young Contrarian. I'll refer to it again as Letters, just for brevity. Um, I, I, I don't know, you arguably one of the best essayists Britain has produced, in my opinion. Some may well perhaps suggest George Orwell for that accolade. However, it doesn't matter. In my opinion, he was way up there. Hitchens, I believe he does not take a contrary view simply for the sake of it. He, does, he develops his views through a forensic curiosity, learning, intellect, to back that up. Uh, he brings in a global perspective and he is almost has a moral authority. Some may disagree with that, but I, I think that's where he's coming from and that's how I see him. Uh, coupled with that, he has a wit that slices like a scimitar. Um, and, and he does. He, he rages against oppression, injustice, hypocrisy and corruption, in my opinion. In letters, he, through various essays, encouraged free thought free of the constriction of popular convention. Uh, he urges one to be sceptical where appropriate and provides the evidence for and the, and he also explains the difficulty of adopting a contrary approach to life or approach to anything really. It can be a lonely place. He talks about the danger of it. Uh, in my opinion it's a very, it's a short book but it's a wonderful book steeped in his massive intellect I think how do I sum it up well it really, how, how did it affect me what, what was it a gateway in terms of my thinking why was it a gateway it reinforced my default position in life and it gave me a courage to keep going to be brave almost to adopt if reasonable a contrary position against the odds often he helped me, un he helped me understand that a consensus no matter, how, no matter how clever or exalted the position of those claiming it, does not mean they were in fact correct. And and that's where I got a lot of strength reading, uh, reading Hitchens' books. I just think they're wonderful pieces of work, really artwork, and that's funny kind of way. And that's what they did for me. However, surely you're joking, Mr. Fenman, a totally different character. Uh, it's so much common sense and so much kind of simple way of putting things, Fenman. He's a genius, in fact. He was a magician. He's much in common with, Fen with Hitchens in that style. I, I don't know. I don't think we ever met each other. Maybe they did. I don't really know. Uh, and not in the way that he expresses or presents arguments necessarily. Uh, he's almost Mr. Benign to Hitchens, Mr. Edgy. <laughs> and while they're out of different stables, their intellect is unsurpassed. As I said, even if expressed differently and gleaned from totally different experiences. Feynman often presents as though he was overawed by his knowledge, his genius. He almost had a, a the way I saw him, almost like a childlike quality. But don't be fooled by that. He knew where he was going and he was ruthless in his pursuit of knowledge and understanding. He was the first person I can think of who explained the difference between knowledge and understanding to me. They're not the same. And he eloquently explains it in one or two different ways. Uh, he says his dad could identify just about every species of a particular thrush. I think it was every, 
I think it was a thrush. Every particular thrush you could say that was a this thrush or a that thrush. But as he argued, his dad might well have been able to do that, but he didn't actually understand the bird. He didn't know how it flew and various other things about it. He could certainly identify it and see it. And, he, and that's one of his arguments for the difference between knowledge and understanding. He talked about the Mayan Indians and how they had enough observation and, and enough knowledge to be able to tell where a particular planet and or the sun would appear at a certain time of the year. And they built monuments, edifices to coincide with the position, which made them look really clever. People who had never thought about it. But what Fenman says is, and that's clever enough in its own right, but they didn't understand the whole concept of planets and the universe. So, and that was what he was trying to explain the difference between you knowing certain things but not understanding necessarily. Uh, he also explained in some ways the difference between the why question and the how. Uh, one may well be about science and one may be about psychology. Uh, who knows? But they lead to different alleys, and that's another important thing I learned from them. They're not a, they don't take the same place, and, and and differentiate what you're trying to find out with the why and the how. So, but apart from all that, what did it make me think about, or what did both of them make me think about? To think for myself, not to go popular opinion, not to blindly follow the consensus. Question it. Read, research, get out and ask, seek out the truth, be brave, because to question popular opinion, I think anyway, is to question consensus, I think I would put it that way, I'm not sure how I would put that, but it can be a lonely place. So, I make no apology for overstepping my allowance in that case. In their own way, both Hitchens and Feynman were a breath of fresh air and were in some ways both contrarians, and that's good enough for me. And the final book that you've chosen is Blood Meridian, a novel by the sometimes controversial literary figure Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, pretty much controversial. <laughs> uh, but before I reached that one, I, I struggled through lots of books, thinking, you know, I, I wasn't sure I'd laid them all out. I, you know, The Pearl by John Steinbeck was featuring, should I go with that? Because there's a message in there. Atlas Shrugged by Anne Rand, thirties book. Uh, it was a huge tome of a book, uh, but I read it and yeah, I could have maybe picked that as well. Uh, Trita Parsi writes a book called Treacherous Alliance. Uh, after years of research about the about the uh, the relationship between the USA, Israel, uh, uh, and Persia, or Iran, sorry, <laughs> to get up to date. And that's a wonderful book, and, 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 and there's messages in that one as well that, that, that make you look at the, the, the East differently, or the West and the East. John le Carre, I, how could you miss out John le Carre? I'm up there quality, the spy who came in from the cold. You know, and, and Fitzroy MacLean, which actually was not a novel in that sense, it's actually a factual book, Eastern Approaches which is probably one of the best spy books I've ever read because it's real. And it makes you understand that a spy is just a guy or a girl walking about in a community doing things and without all the trappings that James Bond was handed to help him or her do them. So, but before, I, but I picked 
Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy because it, uh, it, it, I don't know, it, it, it assaulted my senses really. It was just such a colossal book. I, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. <laughs> and and if, if it's be okay, I, I'd, I'd maybe try my best to read one small section, an early section in the book that made me go, my goodness. The mother dead these 14 years did incubate in her bosom the creature who would carry her off. The father never speaks her name. The child does not know it. He has a sister in the world that he will not see again. He watches, pale and unwashed. He can neither read nor write, and in him broods already a taste for mindless violence. All history presents in that visage the child, the father of the man. And that's early in the book. And there's a lot of that in the book. Stark, I think, stripped of normal emotion. Eh, maybe not rage, but certainly just really quite stark. The book continues in that almost depressing, forlorn manner. So why would you enjoy it? Well, I enjoyed it because of the literary epic, in my opinion, that it was. I mean, McCarthy, in, in some ways, plays fast and loose with the English, with English grammar at bits. In many sections, the comma is innocent. He takes risks with how he presents the history of the American-Mexican border at the time. I mean, a risk that some people took issue with, eh, and with the interaction with the Native Americans. He paints an image, well, I think anyway, of a vivid, endless, ranging countryside, skies, blood-red, hence the term for the book, I suppose, and an endless landscape. Vivid, brutal, merciless, wretched characters. It's a book that assaults your senses, takes your breath away. My brother reads, reads for Britain virtually, and I gave him a copy of the book and he told me later on that he never managed to finish it because it was just so brutal. <laughs> A review from the Maccabi Society suggests that bloody boring. Uh, they, they review it as having no plot. The prose is described as negative, aimless, nihilistic, and that McCarthy fails to describe violence clearly or the violence that takes place clearly. That was why I liked it, not because it assaulted my senses, but because it was such an epic in the way that it was written and, and, and the McCarthy's style. I am clear, however, Despite what the Maccabi Society may think, he does exactly what's intended. He describes with the skill of a master penman the reality of such a wretched place, where your only wish is to survive. In such circumstances in the real world, there's not always a plot. I happened to be in an occupation in my life where I turned up at some serious chaotic incidents with violence or taking place sometimes still happening or just you know after it had finished and it's not always easy to work out exactly what happened or to describe it even the witnesses couldn't describe what they'd seen or what they thought they'd seen no McCarthy I don't think is wrong at all I think he's actually perfectly correct he's not describing a John Wayne Gary Cooper type Hollywood dream of the west the, the, the characters are not going to suddenly disappear off into the sunset with a girl in their arm because it isn't like that all the time. So, yeah, many acts of violence are in it and, and are depicted in the book. 
that are about panic and chaos with nobody recalling exactly what happened. No Blood Meridian, in my opinion, it's a great novel and it was my gateway to the wonderful literary giant that's McCarthy and, and, and a lot of his books that follow are almost, I don't know, endlessly, endless drudgery of life sometimes, but he describes it so perfectly in terms of his grasp of of, of, of the pen and how, how to actually hold your attention. So yeah, Blood Marinian gets in there because I think it's a great novel and it was a gateway to me to a different way of writing and thinking about books because everything's not, as I said, John Wayne finishing off in the sunset with a girl in his arm. And there you go, these were my five books. I hope they were interesting and I hope that the reader maybe picks at one or two of them and is astounded as I was when I read them. Thank you, Tom, for the opportunity. Well, it's an interesting thing, Ian, because looking at your selection of books, um, they all seem, to me at least, uh, to pertain to Billy Connolly's old saying of a, a sideways look on life. And uh, and it's intriguing because the thing about literature, they always say that if literature should obey one rule, it is that there are no rules that should define literature. Yeah, I, I mean... I, I agree with you. I mean, you wouldn't just sit and read the same. Well, maybe you do. I mean, geez. I mean, there's lots of books that have followed the same. The, the, the Jack Reacher books, for instance, but Lee Child. I, I thoroughly enjoy them. I, I'm not. But they follow the same formula time and time again. So I suppose because maybe it depends the mood you're in. Maybe it's brain candy. Maybe some nights you've had a hard day and it's nice just to sit down in front of the fire, and just read something that you know where it's going to take you. It's dead relaxing. But these books weren't like that. These books took me nowhere I knew. I didn't know where they were taking me. And I was all the more intrigued by them. And I learned so much from them purely because of that. Now, you're right. Literature literature. People just have an imagination. They get it in paper. And if we walked into an art gallery and just stood and looked at the same picture on every wall, it would be very boring in literature's art and it is not boring and it's not meant to be boring it's meant to engage you get you to get your juices running and help your imagination in, in all sorts of ways you know and these these five I, yeah probably there were others I could have slotted in but I stuck with these well five six really because I cheated at one point so thank you well thank you Ian for spending time with us today and explaining a little bit about the books that have come to shape your worldview and how you've come to engage with literature over the years. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Ian McNeish's book, The Fern Bobby, is available to buy from Extremist Publishing. It's available from all good online booksellers and independent retailers worldwide. Thanks very much for joining us today. I hope you'll tune in again soon. <laughs>